Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. All right, welcome back to Coffee and Conservation. And we are here with our second episode with Nolina of Nolina's Heavenly Organics, where we're going to get into some of the challenges she faced uh, as a small farmer. And so we're going to jump right back into that conversation with myself, Nolina, and PhD student Lexi Firth. I wanted to talk more about maybe some of the challenges you encountered, and you mentioned several of the climatic challenges in New Mexico. Um, in particular, what would be the top uh, environmental challenges that you encountered farming in New Mexico, just to kind of recap those all together? Oh, uh, well, uh, the temperature extremes and the winds and the changing climate in New Mexico is, is the top one. Um, there were some other ones that I hadn't mentioned yet. Uh, the seasonal high tunnels did help with that. And, and over time, we built three 30-foot by 70-foot seasonal high tunnels. And when you walk inside, they're, they're big, and you can grow a lot in there. So um, uh, that was my favorite um, uh, fix for the, the climate extremes in New Mexico. Another um, thing is the insects um, that, that come and also the, um, since my farm uh, is situated uh, near the Bosque or near the Rio Grande, it's, there's a lot of wild creatures around. So um, one morning you'll walk out and you'll see some melons lying there that are just a haul. They've been all eaten out. And you go, oh my gosh. Uh, and you, you can't figure it out. And then one, and then another farmer will say, oh, coyotes will come in at night and eat your melons. <laughs> so for that, we just grew extra. We had enough to share. Another time we found um, deer in the field eating tomatoes and deer can come and eat a lot of tomatoes. So for that, um, Number one, we also shared, we had enough to share, but they can really, uh, a whole little family of deer will come and eat a lot of tomatoes. And uh, that might be one of your basic crops, one of your basic cash crops. So for that, uh, I, I read and read, the, the web wasn't always around like it is now for researching, but these days you can find just about anything if you know how to phrase it properly. So we ringed the field with um, fishing line on posts or the, you know, the, at least the tomato part of the field uh, with one lower and then another higher at, at, um, uh, at different, so one was about three feet back from the other and then uh, put little bells on there. So, and that worked, right? It was a simple solution and it worked and the deer didn't eat the tomatoes anymore or if we heard the bells, we would um, uh, let the dogs out and they'd, and they'd have, all have fun. <laughs> The pests were more problematic. Um, uh, the, like I said, for the squash bugs, what I finally uh, moved towards doing was not growing plants that, that got devastated or destroyed by pests. For instance, brassicas, um, you know, everything from kale to uh, uh, broccoli, any of the brassicas can here in New Mexico get um, an invasion of harlequin bugs. 
and they will just explode over overnight, right? So you you see a few, and then if you don't uh, attend to it the next day, they're covered with them. So you have to pull that crop. So don't grow brassicas in the heat of the summer. Just try to grow them in the fall or in the seasonal high tunnel in the winter. That so that you don't have to um, deal with pests like that. So there's other bugs that would come on things, and sometimes we would spray with uh, safer soap, which is an organic, just a soap um, for some things, depending on how heavy the infestation was or how important that crop was or how many orders we had placed for it and we really needed it. So uh, it just depended. That was usually a last resort. We tried to avoid the soap if we could. Uh, yeah. If I remember, yeah. <laughs> I do want to give just a little background because you you mentioned the bosky and the real the real ground just so everybody knows context. Uh, bosky is uh, I believe it's derived from a Spanish word. It means woodlands, and it's basically just the wooded riparian area that is right along a riverway. So Nolina's farm was very 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 close to the um, the Rio Grande and uh, was situated amongst very old growth cottonwood trees. So I think most people think of New Mexico as being very sparse and like a desert and it is like that in places and even not even that far away from where we were. Uh, but it was lush for a, for, for a desert, it was pretty lush. Okay. Yep. Yeah, you, yep. you know that's always helpful for me. <laughs> so I, have less, I have less perspective of the Southwest. <laughs> Um, uh, I, I do. I do think the bosque, uh, which is the word for the cottonwood uh, woodlands along the Rio Grande, is a unique habitat that just occurs, uh, at least in America, uh, along the Rio Grande, which flows from Colorado clear down to Texas and empties into the Gulf. So when you started the farm, um, and and had just the you know the piece of land before you were very knowledgeable perhaps of farming as you were still learning. What were some of the initial challenges as a beginning farmer? Um, whether those were financial or just finding the resources or finding labor, because it sounds like with most of the specialty crops, those require um, like hand labor and not, not necessarily machinery to plant and harvest and things like that. Um, so all of, the, all of those are correct. <laughs> So um, I, I, want, I want to add about the, the location is the farm was secluded and uh, had to be fenced to keep cattle out uh, when I first bought the land because in, um, in the Wild West here, there's uh, open range laws still apply. Cattle can just roam all over and it's up to the landowner to fence them out. So um, that's different than other parts of the country. Um, but um, the first things were, number one, to build a little house to live in, right? So we built a little straw bale. Uh, since I always admired straw bale, there's a good habitat for it, and that was a lot of fun. The second thing was to uh, pull up the salt cedar, salt cedar out of the, the acre field that I chose in the middle. I have just but a few acres of, like, open land, um, and the rest of it is pretty treed. But salt cedar in the west um, is, is a, a problematic uh, plant and it spreads and it's very hard to uh, eradicate and the NRCS does have grants for that, but they uh, prefer to use our arsenal or arsenal. Arsenal, I think, is a, is they like to 
dust it or spray it. And of course, I'm organic, so I couldn't have that. So I finally persuaded the rep here from the NRCS to come and remove the salt cedar mechanically. So um, I did get a grant for that. That helped a lot. And uh, But then in the middle of the field, there were, it, it had come back. It'll come back. And so uh, we had to actually rent a little thing, um, a piece of equipment. I called it the claw. It's one of those things that reaches down and pulls things up. I can't remember the actual name of that piece of equipment, but you rode it. And then we would grab the salt cedar and pull up. And those roots, some of them were 10, 12 feet long. So once you remove the roots, then they won't grow back. So that was one thing out in the field. The other was adding enough compost. My very first time I had a semi truck bring down um, 40 cubic yards of um, uh, aged poultry compost uh, for it to be organic. It has to be aged over six months. Um, and all, that's another thing for record keeping. If you want to be organic, you have to keep detailed records uh, to meet the certification process. So once, so that was for my acre, but once we tilled it in to the point where you could actually pick it up and go, oh, now this is like soil, it only covered a quarter acre. <laughs> so I decided we would start at first with just a quarter of an acre, which you can grow a lot of food on a quarter of an acre. The other thing was uh, to uh, have a well drilled and run irrigation. So um, I had, uh, of course, I hired a, a well driller to come and drill a well, but then I wanted to lay the irrigation myself. So some people came and helped, and we trenched and laid PVC pipe, and um, and then uh, I wanted to lay out the field for drip irrigation, and so I ordered that from Dripworks. So I remember here comes this big box filled with um, with a roll of tea tape on the side, but filled with all the setting, the components, um, like little plugs and and everything that in the header and everything you needed to uh, pull off of your water line that you'd laid. And it came and I opened it and I was so overwhelmed. I sat on the back of the pickup truck with this box of plumbing parts and just cried for a while. And then I go, okay, well, that won't, that won't do. <laughs> so then I got the instructions out, identified all the parts and then started putting it all together. So, um, so there's a lot of different things that go along, but number one is shelter, number two is water. And um, I did also, the financial portion of farming is a huge hurdle. You have to budget a lot of money upfront for seeds and soil inputs, et cetera, and also harvesting and then transporting to market, all the costs that go with farming. You have to put that out upfront before you get every, and all the, the um, the cash flow comes later in the season once things have grown and been harvested and been delivered. So um, uh, it would help if you had uh, a family that gave you a farm. <laughs> yes, I could see that being beneficial. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you were, when you were talking about the irrig irrigation tape, and then all of a sudden you said you just sat down and cried. Because right before then, as you were describing the scenario, I was thinking, man, I would have been exhausted mentally, just like in trying to do all this. So when you said you just sat down and cried, I was like, yes, that is what I would have done. <laughs> yeah. And so that was, my, that was later on when we were uh, getting to actually making the field where you could grow things. So before that was the fencing of the acreage to keep the cattle out, the removal of the salt cedar, uh, the building of a little structure to live in, 
and all the things that go just so you can settle there. So the infrastructure is really important. So if, you, if you're going to be a new farmer, just buy a little farm already there. If it already has a dilapidated barn to camp in or already has the water laid or already has these things, that will free up a lot more energy to uh, actual farming and growing food. How long do you think it took for you to get to the point where you were selling and had the farm functional? You know, I think there's always challenges that you had to overcome, but uh, that initial setup period, how long was that for you? Three years. I, re I remember, you know, so I bought the property and then, you know, little by little, and I, and I was still working at a job, you know, to to help pay for it and so but I remember the very first produce order was from La Montanita co-op and I had gone around and talked to the stores and to other farmers and to the chefs so I knew what they wanted right so I would know what to grow it's really important that you have a place to sell your produce and that's also a relationship that you develop over time and also the quality of your produce and and the um, timeliness of your deliveries. If you say you're going to deliver something at a certain time, uh, it has to be the top quality and, and delivered when you say it will because uh, produce is, uh, most of it except for garlic and onions is, and potatoes is, um, you know, uh, needs to be properly cared for. Um, so, uh, but I remember after three years, we finally had not even the quarter acre planted, but a little bit of it and we started with um, uh, greens. I've always been fond of greens. So I had an order for 40 one-pound bunches of chard for La Montanita Co-op. And I had no idea how much that actually was. <laughs> or there was enough chard leaves growing in the field uh, to harvest and band up. And of course, we had to have a, a washing station and, and places to chill it after we harvested. And uh, this friend of mine, Cynthia, came over and we worked under the uh, headlights of the truck to keep on harvesting because it was a lot more than than I it was just more than I could uh, conceive of 40 bunches 40 pounds of chard right so uh, we we harvested banded it up weighed it banded it into one pound um, bunches washed uh, that, that was back when a bunch of greens at the co-op or at the market was a pound these days I notice people like smaller uh, bunches and maybe that's because the people that buy it really prefer fewer greens so um uh but and we finally had enough and washed and banded it washed it and had it in the in the uh the refrigerator um so that we could load it up in boxes the next morning and deliver it so that was that was the first thing but it took a few years to uh, develop the land enough to start growing yeah, thank you for being really candid about all of that. Uh, I think knowing the details and um, a lot of the challenges at the beginning and the time the process takes really not only provides inspiration for people to, to move through that trial period, but a really um, authentic awareness to uh, what it really takes to have a functioning small business um, in, in on an organic farm and the time it takes to do that and to do it well in all of the different considerations that you had at the beginning you mentioned the the soil inputs and you you talked about these at the beginning and then they were mentioned again the bone meal the blood meal um, and some of your soil management strategies to um, get the soil functioning and have the quality of produce that you wanted 
are you able to source those locally? I'm not as familiar with blood meal or bone meal as a soil amendment. Um, you mentioned the chicken litter, I think, and I, or the chicken compost, right? Uh huh. So yeah, um, the aged chicken compost was up in Albuquerque. There's a place there that does that. They make mulch and compost and um, and huge. They have huge mountains of it. So. Um, 40 cubic yards of aged poultry compost has a lot of wood in it, right? And the aged poultry compost, uh, and they might even have perlite or something similar to that in there um, from, I'm not sure where that would come, but I would see the little white dots in there. So, um, uh, so mm -hmm. locally sourcing things when you, uh, so the farm was about 80 miles from Albuquerque. So if you're also if you're going to farm, it helps to be closer to the market and to closer to, you know, supplies and things. So um, uh, that that was another challenge that um, I didn't anticipate because I had stars in my eyes. But um, <laughs> um, just another so little the, context: the farm was about an hour, hour and fifteen minutes away from Albuquerque. Uh -huh. That's how long the drive. Uh -huh. So, uh, so for the farmer's market on Saturdays, we got up at four, left at five, got there at six and were set up and ready to open at seven. So um, th those were long days. So it did provide, uh, yes, it was, it was uh, far. <laughs> and the people that live in Albuquerque in the South Valley, for example, they, they're just, they're in an, they're ready to go in an hour. They just drive their setup and they're ready. So they get to sleep in a little more. <laughs> but um, the uh, bone uh, blood meal, uh, I would order these things through the local feed store. So they would get them. Uh, blood meal, blood meal comes from slaughterhouses. So during a time I could not get, um, I it was hard to get blood meal because of the mad cow disease was around. So they stopped making that. So finally they shifted over to it's just dried blood uh to and it doesn't sound very appetizing but it is a natural input into the soil and it does and it's completely nitrogen it provides a lot of nitrogen and it's a time release thing so if you apply it at the rate uh you know how many pounds per whatever per square feet per acre uh, then it does last for the next six months um, bone meal uh, is absorbed more quickly into the soil and by the plants. So bone meal is easy to get. Like um, I think I would get that at a local nursery, but I would order 20 or 40 pound bags, uh, or I would get it at a wholesale su supply place called Greenhouse and Garden Supply, where they got wholesale uh, um, supplies for landscapers and, and farmers. So um, those are as far as uh, when you mean source locally, um, I don't know where the bone meal comes from, nor the blood meal. I do know where the organic compost would come from. So, yeah, I guess in my brain, I was, yeah, I was thinking actually just like where it comes from in general. So whether it's locally or from further away, I was just kind of curious where the bone meal and blood meal come from. And then yep. when you get it since it's dried, is it in like a powder form and you just apply it on top of the soil? That's correct. It's, it comes in, in 20 or 40 pound bags and it's powder, both the bone meal and the blood meal. And you apply it in the soil. You like weigh it, right? Or d divvy it up. Um, so you walk your field, it's 140 feet and, you're, and it's four feet wide. So that's uh, uh, 560 feet that you need to put this many pounds on. And so you kind of just estimate and lay it out. You sprinkle it on the soil and then you turn it in. So um, 
yeah, and so you work it into the soil, either you till it in or work it in um, so that it's in the soil. And then the drip irrigation, as it's watered, then that breaks down at the rate uh, that it does and the, is a, used utilized by the plant. Okay, so one observation about the blood meal was that it attracted a lot of animals. So um, it's a really good idea to get it into the soil as quickly as you can, because particularly any sort of carnivore or anything that eats meat. So we had issues with the dogs going and just chomping down on it and really oh. anything that would come in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you want to work it. You want it. You don't want it laying on top of the ground. You want yeah. it to work. Turn it in. You want to till that row right away. <laughs> I forgot okay. That. Yeah, that's that's a good antidote to add. Um, you know, my question that I had that I lost before, or maybe it's more of a a you know brief question I'd like to pose to you all, and it's okay if you don't have a specific answer to this because it's kind of a detailed question, but I wanted to at least mention or offer some comparison of scope to the size of your farm and ask about okay. how much produce you could provide each year, or how many people you think it might support. I know Lexi and I in our research now are working with commodity scale farms where, you know, often farmers are working with landscapes that are upwards of 1,000 acres, sometimes up to 5,000 acres or more. And so, you know, one acre farm, uh, more on a produce scale and how much that can produce is also incredible. I think our CSA in town also probably, I think, off, operates on one acre. Um, do, you have a, do you have an idea of how many pounds or people one acre can support in terms of production? Um, I have it more in a, in a, a, a monetary value. So, okay. um, because every every single farm, especially petite artisan farms, are um, a blend of different variables, just like people are, right? So, um, it just depends on uh, what your mix is. And so, if you when you're starting a farm, you really want to diversify. You want to have um, besides the annual things that you keep planting, carrots and spinach, you want to plant some things that are perennials, like um, like asparagus, you plant that once, it takes two years, but then it produces every spring for, I don't know, maybe forever and ever. Um, and also you want to plant fruit trees, right? And so you want to really diversify. So, um, uh, and also uh, we, we raised uh, chicken, both for eggs and for meat. And uh, then I kept sheep, um, uh, so, and, and the, the, the one acre in the middle was just for growing, and then there were other areas also for livestock and for the chickens, and so there was more than just one acre used. Um, so, it's a, but uh, the farm, when it was at its peak for the produce, um, would produce about thirty dollars to $35,000 a year in in uh, produce, but we were hustling a lot and had a lot of volunteers. And that was a combination of both retail at farmer's markets, and we would do two a week, and also selling t wholesale to the um, La Montini, to, to the co-op, and to a couple other stores sometimes, and also making one to two week runs to the chef's 
at uh, a, a, a string of restaurants in um, Albuquerque that would buy uh, tomatoes, squash, chard, everything, right? They would, and they would plan their menus around what was available. So, um, uh, so, but so the what would support? We we also have those very large farms around here. We're in the valley here, where people grow uh, acres and acres of the green, famous green chili, right here. Everybody loves that, and also alfalfa, right? So we have the big combines and the big you know tractors and the big huge fields that are you know hundreds and hundreds of acres. So, um, so that kind of farming goes on around here too. Uh, one reason I did buy the land where I started the farm was because it's secluded and it's removed from other farms. So I didn't have to worry about if they're, you know, dusting or something, uh, any drift or anything so that it was easier to be organic. Um, so uh, $30,000 would be the cash flow from a farm. But from that, you have to take out all of the expenses Um so it just depends on the lifestyle. Do you have land payments? Do you have house payments? Do you have um, uh, another spouse working to bring to bring in a steady stream of income and provide health insurance and health benefits? Right? Do you have kids? Um, so so it's a a, a complex question uh, with a with an answer. Uh, just like anything in life, is it depends. That is my favorite answer. I just. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna say that to a class later today. <laughs> That's the answer um, to everything in every profession and in life. I think it depends, right? <laughs> yeah, everyone's circumstances and available resources are very different uh, for each individual and very different at every point in time for those individuals. So yes, I think that's a very reasonable and and the best answer to that question. I want to I want to say one more thing. We always felt rich on the farm because we always had enough food to eat. <laughs> and what we didn't grow, we would trade with other farmers. Like if I didn't grow potatoes one year, we'd trade uh, one of my specialty crops produce with them for potatoes, right? And so uh, farming, you're always, uh, you feel rich because you have enough, right? And so, and you have a place to live and uh, you have a big harvest dinner every year where 40 people come and bring bread and wine and you make everything else from the field. So um, it really is a lifestyle and it's a, a it's a good, a good life. Yeah. And I, I, Really, you know, what stuck with me too is you were describing uh, the different markets you access to sell, uh, and you mentioned it earlier too, is that connection with the community um, and connection with people who are buying your produce or the chefs who are buying your produce. Um, and while I'm sure some of those outlets were more efficient in terms of buying or selling in bulk, um, I have a feeling that the connection is part of the value to you as well as you describe the lifestyle. Yes. I, I mean, it, ha it has to be right. Your, your relationship with, um, with the people that first come and help on the farm or live on the farm or work on the farm together. Right. And then um, from um, people that you get your supplies from and then people you sell your produce to at the markets. And when um, customers come by um, and you get to know them year after year, right. And they, and they say, thanks for what you do. That's really the best reward. And, and uh, so, and also at La Montanita, uh, the produce manager at one of the stores, uh, 
ha, uh, was a woman. Her name was Roe. And, uh, and she just said, you're my only female farmer, Nolina. Keep on growing. <laughs> so that is a perfect segue for us to continue to talk about your farming philosophy and um, your unique perspective as a female farmer. As always, you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show. And we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor, the Mississippi Natural Resources Conservation Service, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu. Thank you.